God is indeed mighty to save. In Psalm 3, verse 8, David pens these words as he's fleeing from his son Absalom. He says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Sometimes it's extremely tough to see salvation, to see hope, to see the blessings from the Lord in the midst of troubled circumstances. When our life is clouded out by the world's brokenness, wickedness, suffering, it's oftentimes difficult to see the Son of God's goodness peek through that cloud. Today, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 15. If you have one of our Pew Bibles, it's on page 267. And we're going to begin at verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter as we explore the story of David and Absalom. It says in verse 24, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. And with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came up to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me, the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar 
the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When we look at this passage, verse 26 clearly stands out. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. David clung to the promise that God was good and that God does good. And so he says, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, here I am. He's willing to allow what God's will be done unto him as God wills. Sometimes it's really hard for us to understand that, to embrace that truth because our circumstances just don't feel good. David clung to the goodness of God and we know that because all over his psalms that he wrote, he wrote about how good God really is despite any circumstance. In Psalm 16, 2, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In Psalm 23, 6, it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 25, 7 says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Following that in verse 8, it says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. And in Psalm 27, 13, it says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In 31, 19, it says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In 38.4.8, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's clear that David, as he's up on the Mount of Olives, clings to this promise of how good God is. But we have to understand how difficult it must have been for him. And to do that, we have to reel back in time and look back at 2 Samuel 12, up to 15. In 2 Samuel 12, David hears the consequences for his sin with Bathsheba. He learns that the sword is never going to depart, that evil will be within his own house, that there will be public adultery to shame him, and that the child will die. And so shortly after that, in chapter 12, the child of Bathsheba and David's does die. 
And then David comforts Bathsheba again and Solomon, who's named Jedidiah there in the text, which means God loved him, is born. It's very interesting that the text makes a very quick move from that short description about the fact that God loves Solomon to the story of Absalom. In chapter 13, we have how Amnon committed adultery and forced himself upon his sister Tamar. And in the very foreground of that text, it puts Absalom first, because he's going to be the central figure that we trace afterwards. It refers to Absalom as the brother of Tamar. And when Amnon talks about who Tamar is, he refers to her as Absalom's brother. As a result of Amnon's great sin with Tamar, David is angered but does nothing. Absalom invites Tamar into his home for her to live out her days. And then he plots. He plots the takeover of the kingdom. You see, Amnon was the firstborn king, and Absalom was the secondborn king. And by his ambition and by his pride, he decides to lay a trap for his brother Amnon. And so he gathers sheep herders that have successfully just finished shearing, and he invites all of David's sons to come and feast. And there he unleashes his trap, and he has his servants murder his brother Amnon. Following that, he flees from Jerusalem, and he lives in exile for a number of years. All this time, David, his father, longs, his heart longs out for Absalom. Joab's David's right-hand man, and Joab goes, and he seeks a way for Absalom to be brought back to Jerusalem. He has a woman of Tekoa come before David so that she can tell a story, one that she's basically fabricated along with Joab, about her two sons and about how one son rises up and slays the other. David gives the judgment that the other son should not be slain and that he should be well cared for and loved. And of course, the woman of Tekoa replies back, how is it that this should be the case and it's not the case for your own son Absalom? David, cut to the quick by this statement, tells Joab to send for Absalom to return. Absalom returns to the city of Jerusalem and dwells in the city of Jerusalem, but David does not wish for Absalom to come into his presence. Absalom tries to reach out to Joab a couple times, and Joab doesn't respond, and so he decides to destroy Joab's crops. He sets them to fire to get his attention, and Joab comes to Absalom a man who wasn't humble enough to go to Joab. And Joab pleads his case once more before David. 
1433, we hear the account of Absalom coming back into the presence of David. It says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And that's all we have. We don't hear about this reconciliation, this reunion. It's nothing like the story of Joseph with his brothers when they reconciled, where there was weeping and celebration, and Joseph confesses what you sought for evil, God sought for good. At this point, David doesn't feel these things. Absalom decides to uh, set a plot. He decides to overthrow the kingdom. So what does he do? He uh, goes and stands where judgment would take place, and every time a person comes before the judge, who is David the king, Absalom tells that person, the judge won't hear your case and he won't rule in your favor. Oh, if there were a king in Jerusalem who would see your case like I do. And in similar fashion to the way David kissed Absalom, Absalom grew into the practice of kissing each of these people and affirming his love and support for them. And of course, that in turn won their hearts. We don't hear tons about the character of Absalom. We just see it take place and unfold in the storyline. But we do have a few verses that talk about how he was an unblemished figure, that he was a handsome man in appearance, that he was well-loved by people, and that he had long-flowing locks of hair, in which he was extremely proud of. And each year, at a certain time of year, he would cut off all of that hair and have it weighed. He was quite a vain man. So Absalom decides to unleash his next deceptive plot. He has decided that he's going to make a vow before the Lord and to worship him and to give sacrifices. And so he goes before his father David, and they have their very last conversation with one another, where he tells him that he had always vowed to the Lord that if he would return himself to Jerusalem, he would go and he would make sacrifices to the Lord. David, not knowing what is going on, but knowing that Absalom has been making a great show of himself by having 50 men run before him, and by using a chariot in a very unlikely terrain to use one in Jerusalem, sends him off. And these are the last words that David says to his son. He says, go in peace. Go in peace. Because that's what David wanted most with his son, is to have peace with him, to have shalom. The relationship between David and Absalom is definitely tenuous. And as things continue to unfold, we see just how much this ambition, pride, and power, and deception lead to murder, 
lead to adultery where Absalom comes into the city and he makes a public display of how he's taking over the kingdom by having sex with all of David's concubines who are left in the city to care for the city. We see how he wants to steal this kingdom, one that could have rightfully been given to him had he just waited. It's really clear that he dishonors his father, he dishonors his family, and he brings great shame upon them. And so David is here on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking upon his city that he loves, that he knows that God has given to him as a gift, and he knows that he's just like Absalom, unworthy of this gift of the city, doesn't even really deserve the mercy to continue on, and he rightly perhaps deserves to be dead himself. He sees a lot of himself in his son Absalom. There are so many parallels. David committed adultery. David had a man killed. And he feels the weight of those consequences. We tend to make Absalom into like a one-dimensional character. He's like the villain of the entire story. And it's really tough for us to have sympathy. When I read the commentaries, it basically lays him out that way. They kind of reduce him to just this rotten person. He was really a troubled man who loved his father, who loved his kingdom, and in every way sought to do what he thought was good. David likewise also sought to do what was good for his kingdom, and that is because he looked at all of these circumstances and he said that he needed to lean in upon God's goodness. And that's the catch for us. When we hear all of this story, it seems awfully hollow to say that God is good in every single circumstance because so much of the time we measure goodness by the events that unfold in our life and by circumstances. When we see things taking place that are good and favorable to us, we feel blessed. But then when the clouds appear and the drops of God's goodness are so much more rare, we don't sense that goodness anymore and we question, what is good? What is goodness? Is there any goodness? Stephen Charnock, a 17th century Puritan, decided to deal specifically with this issue of goodness. And he wrote an extensive work that laid out all of the attributes of God. And one of those discourses he wrote, he wrote on the goodness of God. And he leaned in heavily upon how, in spite of all of our circumstances that we face in our life, God is indeed still good and he gives good to his people. And he uses the picture of God's goodness being the sun and everything else in the world being clouds that keep us from that goodness. The troubles, the suffering, the sickness, the pain, the wickedness shrouds out so that the goodness of God has a tough time peeking through. Chernock says this. He says, here, 
Here on this earth, their sun is sometimes clouded, but there, and this is in reference to heaven, all clouds and shades will be blown away and melted into nothing. Instead of drops here, there will be above rivers of life. Charnock and David both understood that goodness isn't located in events, circumstances, or places. At least it's not located in a place unless God's full presence is there. And that's because when we locate goodness, we need to locate it not in our circumstances, but in an encounter. In an encounter of good itself. We look for good in a person. And as Christians, we know the rest of the story. We look for good in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why heaven is going to be so wonderful for us. Because in heaven, there won't be a sun anymore to be clouded out. There won't be a moon hung anymore. The new heavens and the new earth are going to light up the entire horizon by the goodness of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that is going to radiate in its full beams. And so when we look at this story and all of these circumstances, they really take us and invite us into the passion narrative. In fact, when we look at this whole section of 2 Samuel, we see another similar tragic passion narrative take place. In this narrative, you have a son who forces himself upon his sister and then despises her and doesn't take her as a bride. In our true gospel narrative, we have a son who takes upon himself an unblemished bride and loves her and cherishes her. And in Song of Solomon, it talks about how that bride is a sister. In the tragic gospel narrative of Absalom, we have a son who kills a brother. In the true gospel, we have a son who lays down his life for his brothers. In this narrative, the tragic narrative of Absalom, you have a king up on the Mount of Olives, probably not too far from the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping because of what he sees coming of his kingdom. And he hears about a traitor, a Hithophil, who is going to try to give counsel against him and foil his hopes of having his kingdom forever. And that traitor, later, like Judas, will go and hang himself. You have a son who's hung on a tree, who's accursed. Because if you know the story of Absalom, when they go into battle, his father David tells all of his commanders, deal gently with my son. And in the skirmish, the force consumes more that day, and it takes Absalom. And Absalom is hung by his golden locks on that tree accursed for all of his ways in which he's vilified 
broken the law, been a criminal, committed adultery, stole, tried to steal the kingdom, lied and deceived. In our true gospel narrative, we have a man who is accursed, who is hung on a tree and is placed there not because he has broken all the laws, but because he has broken none of the laws and he stands in place of all of us who have broken those laws. And in the tragic gospel narrative here, you have a father who says, my son, my son, my son, oh, if it had been me and not him. You see, this father wanted to spare his son and wanted him to be dealt gently with. But in the true gospel narrative, the father could not spare his son because he knew that the only avenue towards God's goodness came through the cross and through a man being accursed on a tree. David did not yet understand all of these things. He understood the promise of them coming. He knew that he would have an heir, that the kingdom would not depart from him. He couldn't have anticipated the true gospel narrative And we know that the end of this story is extremely hollow. David returns back to the city, saddened. All of the people are weeping. The victory doesn't seem like a victory at all, which is another foil to the true gospel narrative because we know how good the victory is in Christ, our King. Yet, Nonetheless, in all of these circumstances, we have a tough time embracing the fact that there is a good God in the midst of all these circumstances. And we can learn from David, who leaned in upon the goodness of God. And in that whole story in chapter 15, he leaned into God's goodness by looking to his loyal followers who said, I am going to stand by you. I am going to leave the city with you and follow you in spite of these circumstances. David leaned in upon God's goodness by trusting in faith that if it is God's good will for him to return to the city, he will see the dwelling place of God again. He will see the ark and he will be in God's presence again. He leaned in upon God's goodness by having a right self-understanding. A sense of repentance still over his own sin with Bathsheba and all the consequences that came from it. And an understanding of his own unworthiness of the kingdom and his need for mercy. And his own understanding of his son, the tragic character of this gospel. And like anybody who is in circumstances like this, he wept. He lamented, just as Jesus wept for Lazarus. And he stood on that Mount of Olives and he looked over all of it and he prayed. And we know that he prayed because he penned Psalm 3 as he fled the city. And it talks about in Psalm 3 about ascending up onto that hill and him knowing that he wouldn't have to be anxious that night and that he could sleep well because he knows 
that salvation belongs to God. So too, we need to lean in upon how good God is and look for goodness in the location of the person of God and our encounter with him personally rather than measure goodness by our circumstances and what's all around us. Yesterday morning, Gerald and I led a discussion about C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. And in the midst of my reading of Till We Have Faces, I underwent a project to continue reading other works of C.S. Lewis and to really get to know him. I read a biography of his and I read a number of other books. And the last book that I read of his was a book called A Grief Observed. And A Grief Observed is a book that records his bereavement after he lost his wife of three years, Joy Davidman Gresham. Joy had battled with cancer the entire span of that three years. And there was a lot of suffering for both of them. C.S. Lewis himself was suffering from osteoporosis. And he decided to chronicle and dissect and examine his own process of grief as he lamented the loss of this significant person in his life, this dear one of his. And he tackles towards the end in his final notebook that he wrote in A Grief Observed, he tackled this idea of the goodness of God. And he writes this, What reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest exactly opposite? What have we to set against it? And then he says this one sentence. We set Christ against it. Because we know that Christ came to give us goodness. And he gave us goodness in laying down his life, his life and being an ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And so when we face trials, when we save, face events and circumstances in our life where we're troubled about whether there is good, we have to be reminded that we can't place good and measure good by our circumstances. We have to locate it within this person who gave himself up for us. This person who wanted to give us peace. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to help us when we're surrounded by the clouds. And it seems like the drops of God's goodness are altogether rare. And the beams of God's goodness barely peek through those clouds. Help us to not measure goodness by our circumstances, 
in our life events. Help us to be like David, who located goodness within you. And help us to lean in like David, to surround ourselves with loyal, caring friends who are going to have a presence with us when we suffer. Help us to lean in with faith in the person of Jesus Christ and trust. And help us to pray unceasingly and to lament and weep all the ugliness, all of the brokenness, all of the wickedness in the world. Help us to cling to the true gospel narrative. And help us to hope in that future of eternal life where we experience the full radiance of God's goodness, unencumbered, uninhibited. Be with us as we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.